It was Mark Twain who said, It's not the things I don't understand in the Bible that bother me, it's the things I do understand. In other words, there are plenty of passages in the Bible that are very clear, and what they have to say is difficult for us to accept. Those are the things that bother us. For example, the Bible very clearly says that we are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and by practice. That bothers us. We don't like to hear that, and we often find it difficult to accept. We don't like to believe that our problems are our hearts and not our circumstances. We want to believe that our problems are all the wrong things that have been done to us. We don't want to accept the fact that most of our problems are caused by our own sinful hearts. Another illustration of this point is that the Bible teaches we all naturally love ourselves, and Jesus requires that we deny ourselves to follow him. That bothers us. We don't want to hear that, and we don't want to accept it. We don't want to believe that we love ourselves supremely and that this is not a good thing. We want to convince ourselves that we aren't preoccupied with self and we are not infatuated with self. Besides, we want to believe that it's okay and even good to build up self-love. After all, this is what much of modern society teaches us and sadly even many in the Christian community teach. Another illustration of this point is that the Bible teaches us that the only hope of salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot save ourselves, and salvation cannot be attained in any of the world's religions, not even the ones under the umbrella of Christendom. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Many people recoil at that idea or that suggestion. It bothers them immensely. They say it is too narrow or it is too restricted or it is too intolerant. Some even say that it is hate-producing. These are just a few, of, a few examples that illustrate the point that it's not the things in the Bible we don't understand that bother us. It's the things we do understand. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that are very clear, and what they have to say to us is difficult for us to accept. If we stop to think about it, most of us would have to admit that's the case. However, having said that, there are passages in the Bible that are perplexing. We scratch our heads and we wonder what the author meant by what he said. Because we weren't living at the time it was written, and we aren't familiar with all the circumstances surrounding the issues, it's not always easy to know exactly what the author meant by what he said. This poses a problem, especially when you preach expositionally through books of the Bible. When you preach through books of the Bible, you can't skip the parts that are confusing. You can't skip the parts that are difficult to interpret. You have to do your best to tackle them using all the tools and resources you have available. 
Now, I'm saying all of this because the text to which we come this morning is a baffling passage in 1 John. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 2, and you'll see what I mean after I read it and explain a little further. 1 John is over near the end of the New Testament. That is the book that we have been going through in recent weeks. 1 John chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 12 through 14, which will form our text of consideration this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I have written to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. You may have wondered as I read through these verses, what is puzzling about them? In one sense, they are not complicated at all because They talk about familiar concepts that are taught throughout the Bible, such as forgiveness of sins and knowing Christ and knowing the Father and overcoming the enemy of our souls and the Word of God abiding in us. Those are common topics in the pages of the New Testament. So those parts of these verses are not the difficult parts. What makes these verses difficult are the many questions that flow out of their structure. It's the structure that is perplexing. What does John mean by little children, fathers, and young men? Are those actual age categories? Or is John referring to levels of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth? Furthermore, why does John switch from the present tense, I write, I write, I write, to the past tense, I have written, I have written, I have written? Is there something significant about that change? In addition, why does John change what he states as his reason for writing to these various categories of readers? And why does John repeat himself in a couple of these statements, but then he adds a thought when he comes to the last category? Those are the kinds of questions that we will wrestle with this morning. By the way, To prove that these are not easy questions to answer, all you have to do is consult about 12 or 14 commentaries, which I did, and you will see that the suggestions are quite varied. But let me hasten to add that even if we can't be dogmatic on or certain of our answers to those questions, we can still glean much for our souls by digesting the parts that are clearer to our understanding. So with that in mind, let's jump in and seek to probe these Holy Spirit-inspired verses that were penned so long ago. Notice how John begins this little section of his letter. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. The first thing to notice by way of observation is that when John addresses this group again at the end of verse 13... He changes the reason by saying, because you have known the Father. 
Here he says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. It is obvious that all three of these groups, whether they are categories of age or spiritual growth categories, all three of these groups are composed of genuine Christians, true believers in Jesus Christ. They know the Father. They are strong in the Word of God. They have overcome the wicked one. And here John says their sins are forgiven for his name's sake. These are true believers. That is a, those phrases are descriptions of true believers. John has given a strong warning in this chapter about those who claim to be Christians but are not. Do you remember what he said earlier in the chapter back in verse 3? He says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. There are those who claim to be Christians, but their lives prove they are not. That's the warning of verses 3 and 4. This is something that John will address periodically throughout this letter. It was a burden on his heart. It's obvious as you read the letter. It was a burden on his heart that there are people in society who claim to be Christians, who claim to be right with God, who claim to be children of God, but are not. So John will address that on a regular basis. We've already seen that thus far in our study of this letter. We will see it again several times. However, John did not want his readers to assume that he felt that way about them. So he writes them this little section here in chapter 2, this section of affirmation about the genuineness of their salvation. This is a very rich portion of this letter. These three verses are so rich. Therefore, beloved, let's not get so caught up in our questions about this text. And we'll try to wrestle through those and try to answer them. But let's not get so caught up in our questions that we fail to appreciate the glories of these statements made about these believers and about those of us who belong to Christ. John writes to this group with the reminder that their sins were Forgiven. That's the first thing he says. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Have you heard this so much that it has become commonplace to you? If you are a Christian, think about this. If you are a child of God, your sins have been forgiven. Meditate on that. Think about that. Do you realize what that means? And how significant that is? We have grieved God. We have violated His holiness. We have offended His righteousness by our actions, by our words, by our thoughts, by our attitudes. We deserve His wrath. We deserve the lake of fire. And if we were, stand, we were to stand before God with even one unforgiven sin we would justly and properly be consigned to eternal hell. We do really deserve His wrath. But when we come to faith in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. All of them. Not just the ones that we committed prior to salvation, as some wrongly teach. 
All our sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. Obviously, this is not something we presume upon and take lightly and say, oh, I'm forgiven, I'll live any way I want. But the fact is, all our sins are forgiven. Some Christians wrongly teach, well, your sins are forgiven up to the point you became a Christian, but after that, you know, it's, it's kind of touch and go. That's ridiculous. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, all our sins were future. You can't divide it up and say, well, all your past sins are forgiven, but your future ones, uh, they're, they're on your own head. No, all of them were future when Jesus died anyway. All our sins have been forgiven. In fact, the tense of this Greek verb indicates that all our sins have been forgiven and they remain forgiven forever. What a priceless treasure. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 of his followers on a short-term mission and he gave them special power over demons. When they returned, they they were all excited about this power and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It was obvious that they were preoccupied with the wrong thing. So Jesus sought to refocus them on the right thing. Here was his response. When they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Here was his response. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what is most important. That means far more than being granted power over demons. Having our sins forgiven and having our names written in heaven means more than anything in this universe. It means more than anything could possibly mean. And that's the first specific that John mentions in this passage. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, who were or are these little children? I do not believe John is referring to little children of age. Let me mention three reasons why. And this, of course, is where it gets a little bit more technical. We have to wrestle. Number one, it is doubtful that John assumed that little children would be those who would read his letter. The letters of the New Testament are written to the churches that were in existence in the first century. And as you read through those letters, it is obvious that the concepts and the argumentation assume an adult audience. Now, I'm not implying by that you have to be, you know, 35 years old to understand the Bible. That's not the point. You can read the Bible as a teenager and understand it, even as an older grade school child. But it is doubtful that John assumed little children little ones would be reading this letter. Number two, although children are sinners, they aren't the ones who have lived life long enough to do a lot of bad things and accumulate a lot of wrongs for which they need to be forgiven. In other words, it gets worse as we grow older, right? I mean, we all understand that. It gets worse as we grow older and our wrongs before God continue to pile up that's when we really appreciate God's forgiveness. And thirdly, a third reason why I don't believe John is referring to little children of age is that elsewhere in this letter, 
John refers to all his readers as little children. He does so in chapter 2, verse 1. He does so in chapter 2, verse 8. He does so in chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 18. And in chapter 5, verse 21. So it seems that John is not directing this statement toward little kids. In fact, rather than seeing these addresses as referring to chronological age, or the other popular interpretation, spiritual maturity, Rather than seeing these addresses as referring to chronological age or spiritual maturity, I believe the best approach is to see the terms as applying to all Christians. Let me explain that further. If John were describing chronological age or spiritual maturity, that's the two most common views or interpretations of this, then it seems strange that his sequence is children fathers, and then young men. Instead, we would expect him to go from children to young men to fathers. But he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because it appears that he is actually using all three terms to refer to Christians, now catch this, who can see their Christian experience from at least three different angles or three different points of view. To say it another way, being a Christian can be viewed from three different perspectives. Christians can be viewed as little children in the family of God. And that perspective has a distinct emphasis on aspects of the Christian life. In other words, all of us as believers, regardless of our age, are little children in the family of God. Secondly, Christians can be viewed as young men in the family of God. And that perspective has a distinct emphasis on aspects of the Christian life. Thirdly, Christians can be viewed as fathers in the family of God, and that perspective has a distinct emphasis on aspects of the Christian life. By the way, as a side note, just because John is using masculine pronouns here, he is not intending to exclude women. He is using these terms in a general or generic sense, not specifying male and female. There are aspects of the Christian life that are emphasized by realizing that we are like little children. And there are aspects of the Christian life that are emphasized by realizing that in some ways we are like fathers. And there are aspects of the Christian life that are emphasized by realizing that we are like young men. As little children, and we'll we'll look at each of those individually, but just... The, the verse we're on now, as little children in the family of God, there is the recognition that all our sins have been forgiven. What a glorious reality that is. Our sins are forgiven for His name's sake, the verse says. That means our sins are forgiven on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the basis of who He is, on the basis of what He has done. Our forgiveness is not based on our goodness. It is not based on our worthiness. It is not based on our deservedness or anything in ourselves. It is based on the pristine righteousness of Christ and His substitutionary work on the cross. All our sins are forgiven and they remain forgiven forever. But there's more. Verse 13 says, I write to you fathers... Because you have known him 
who is from the beginning. Let's stop right there. This is looking at what it means to be a Christian from another angle. Little children don't know a lot, but spiritual little children know that their sins are forgiven. That's often the first thing someone comes to understand as a Christian. Jesus died for my sins. My sins have been forgiven. Generally speaking, fathers know a lot more than their children, and Christians can be seen as spiritual fathers in that Christians know God and know Jesus Christ, as this verse says. In John 17, 3, one of the most important verses in the Bible, Jesus prayed to the Father, and He said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Christians know the Father. Christians know the Son. We don't just know about Jesus. We know Him. We really know Him. We know Him personally. We know Him intimately. We have a relationship with Him. Those who don't know Him that way will be sent away into the fire of judgment. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus described the scene at Judgment Day when many people will be shocked to hear Hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me because we never had any relationship. All of humanity then can really be divided into two categories. Those who know God, those who don't know God. Those who know Jesus Christ, those who do not know Jesus Christ. By the way, the personal pronoun him here in this verse, in this phrase, can refer to either the Father or the Son. Both have existed from the beginning, and true believers <coughs> know both the Father and the Son. But then there's a third description here. Notice the end of verse 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. This is another way to view a Christian. This is another aspect of what it means to be a Christian. Young men in life are often known for their accomplishments. I mean, think about it. As I was preparing this, I thought about how many, uh, the, the, the sort of the average age group of Olympia, uh, Olympic athletes. They are young. I mean, every now and then you see uh, an Olympian who's a little older, but they're young. Young men or women are in life are often known for their accomplishments. And in a similar way, Christians are known as those who have overcome or conquered or defeated the wicked one. That's what John says here. Because you have overcome, conquered, defeated the wicked one. The, wick, the wicked one is clearly a reference to Satan. He is called the wicked one eight times in the New Testament. Because that is one of the phrases that summarizes his character and his nature. He is wicked to the core. He hates God. He hates Christ. He hates the Holy Spirit. He hates the Word of God. He hates the people of God. And he hates all of humanity. He wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. That's where he's headed. He knows that. And he wants to drag as many people there as he can. And when he can't deceive someone to that extent, he will do as much as he can to damage them, injure them, or ruin them. He loves to damage people's lives. He loves to destroy people's lives. He loves to lead people to hell. He loves that because he is the wicked one. 
That's why this statement is so meaningful. I mean, think about this. Believers have overcome the wicked one. By virtue of our relationship with Christ, we have been delivered from the the domain and the power of darkness. We no longer belong to Satan, and we won't be dragged by him into hell. We have overcome the wicked one. Now, we can foolishly choose to listen to him at times, and all of us in this room have done that. We can foolishly choose to allow him to cause hurt or damage in our lives. But ultimately, we will overcome him because of our union, our our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of our titles as Christians in the Bible is overcomers. The Greek word is a familiar one to us in the English language because it is the Greek word nike, which comes over into our English language as Nike. Ten times, ten times in the New Testament, we are referred to as a Nike or an, an overcomer. In Romans 8, 37, we are called super Nikes. And it's translated in most of, most of our English translations, more than conquerors, more than victors. That's who or what we are in Christ. In fact, look at chapter 4 of this letter. Just turn over a couple pages to chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. It says, For whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even your faith. By faith in the Lord Jesus, we become overcomers. We become victors. We become Nikes. And that's the way John describes us back in chapter 2, verse 13. Now let's go back to our text there. Now that we've sort of worked our way through these various descriptions of what a Christian is, now John's order or sequence of children, fathers, and young men makes more sense to us. Think about the progression in his mind. We know what it means to have our sins forgiven and then to have fellowship with the Lord because we know him and as a result, to be like strong young men who have overcome the enemy. But John doesn't stop his description. Verse 13, at the end he says, third phrase, I write to you or have written to you little children because you have known the Father. Now John begins to go back through these aspects of what it means to be a Christian. This time, when John addresses his readers, he uses the aorist tense in the Greek, which is often referred to as or seen as a past tense. Only the New American Standard Bible makes this clear by translating it, I have written to you children. Past tense. The first three times John says, I write, I write, I write. Then he says, I have written, I have written, I have written. Now obviously this begs the question, why does John do this? Why does he repeat himself? I think the best explanation is that these truths are so important that John repeats them to confirm what he has just written. 
He doesn't want us to miss these precious truths. He doesn't want us to pass over them quickly. He doesn't want us to just keep reading to get to the next part of the letter. So he repeats himself. He wants to drive home this truth. He wants, us, he wants, to, make sure, he wants to make sure that we pause to think about this. And so in case we're inclined to read quickly, he basically says, I'm going to say this again and make you think about this. As he begins this repetition, he refers to his readers and to us as little children. However, he doesn't use the exact same Greek word that he used back in verse 12. This word not only means little children, it can also mean infant that may explain why in this instance he mentions the fact that we have known the Father. As little ones in the family of God, we have known the Father. Think about this. One of the first things we learn as a Christian is that God is no longer merely God. He is our Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are children, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba! Father. The word Abba was an Aramaic term of endearment used by young children to speak to their fathers, the equivalent of the word daddy in English today. Once we come into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can call God our Abba. We can call God our Father. That is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a Christian. That is a fundamental or foundational aspect of what it means to be a child of God. Then John continues, verse 14. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. <clears throat> this is identical to what John said in verse 13, except he uses the past tense, I have written, instead of the present tense, I write. I write to you, fathers, that's back in verse 13, and now I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Whether you are new in the faith or have been a Christian for a long time, for many years, this is the central aspect of what it means to be a Christian. This is it. This is central. Being a Christian means knowing the Father. Being a Christian means knowing the Lord Jesus. John doesn't hesitate to repeat himself because this is so crucial and because he understood how many people missed this. I mean, beloved, think about it. There are far too many people who believe, even people in the church, not, just, not to mention people in society, there are far too many people who believe that being a Christian means you go to church or being a Christian means that you aren't Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. Or being a Christian means you were born in America. Or being a Christian means you try to be a good person. No, 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 no. That's not what it means. The most basic definition of what it means to be a Christian is knowing the Lord. Knowing the Lord personally. Knowing the Lord intimately. Knowing the Lord genuinely. That's what it means to be a Christian. We come to know Him at conversion, and we spend the rest of our lives getting to know Him more deeply. That's why in Philippians 3.8, Paul described his conversion as knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then two verses later, he said that the goal of his life was to know Christ. It almost sounds like a contradiction. He says, I know Christ my Lord, so I'm a Christian. And then he says, the goal of my life is to know Christ. 
sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. We, we come to know Christ at the moment we place genuine faith in Him, and then we spend the rest of our lives getting to know Him more deeply. That's why John could say that as little children, we have known the Father. And here in this verse, he says that as spiritual fathers, we have known Him who is from the beginning. Then John closes this section by addressing the believers as young men. He says at the end of verse 14, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. This is similar to what John said in verse 13 when he addressed these believers as young men. In verse 13, he said they had overcome the wicked one. Here at the end of verse 14, he says you have overcome the wicked one. But here he adds some descriptions before stating that truth. Two of them specifically. He says you are strong and the word of God abides in you. As Christians, we are strong because the word of God abides in us. We are not strong in our own strength. We are strong because of God's word. James 1.18 even says, Of His own will, He brought us forth, or He birthed us, by the word of truth. God uses the power of His living word to open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts. The Apostle Peter said the same thing about the power of God's word. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. God, the Holy Spirit, uses the power of His living Word to open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts. In John 16, 8, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We learn from James 1.18 and 1 Peter 1.23 that the means... The means by which the Holy Spirit does His convicting work is the living Word of God. So that's the process the Father used to birth us. It's the process the Father used to give us new life. We are strong because the Word of God abides in us. And just as in the case of knowing the Lord... We spend the rest of our lives getting stronger by seeing to it that more of the Word of God abides in us. I mean, think about it. If the Word of God has the power to save us, to open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, if the Word of God has the power to give us strength, why would we not drink in more of the Word of God to make us even stronger? That's why we're exhorted in Colossians 3 to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's why we are exhorted in Ephesians 6 to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The more the Word of God abides in us, the stronger we are. That's a key aspect of what it means to be a Christian and what the Christian life is all about, which is probably why John ended this little section on that note. These verses, beloved, are a potent, 
presentation of who a Christian is and what a Christian is. We are little children who know our sins are forgiven and who know God is our Father. We are fathers who know Him, who, who have known Him who is from the beginning. We are young men who are strong and in whom the Word of God abides and who have overcome the wicked one. That's who we are as Christians. That's what we are as Christians. This description of who we are as Christians forms the basis for the exhortation that John is about to give in verses 15 and following where he tells us not to love the world. Because we are different than the world, because we have been saved out of the world, we are supposed to be distinct from the world. And that's why verse 15 follows, as we'll see, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, follows right on the heels of this section. Because we belong to the Father, and because we belong to Christ, and because we have overcome the wicked one, we should love things that are eternal and not things that are temporary. That's what John explains in the verses that follow. But for now, we need to absorb these powerful and precious descriptions of what it means to be a Christian in the family of God. We are little children who know our sins are forgiven and who know God as our Father. We are fathers who have known Him who is from the beginning. We are young men who are strong and in whom the Word of God abides and who have overcome the wicked one. And I ask you this morning, does this describe you? This is a, de- this is a description, verses 12 through 14. This is a description of a child of God, a Christian. Does it describe you? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you know Christ personally? Do you know Him genuinely? Have you overcome the wicked one? These riches are found only through faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not know Him, come to know Him today. Don't be content with knowing about Him, knowing of Him. Come to know Him today by faith. Let's bow together as we close. Please take just a couple minutes to bow your head and close your eyes and contemplate what you have seen in God's Word this morning. This is such a rich and beautiful description of what it means to be a Christian. If you really are a child of God, if you really are a Christian, then these descriptions should rejoice your heart. They they should cause your heart to rejoice. To realize who we are, what we are as believers in Jesus Christ. If you're not a child of God, if this does not describe you, then you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And you can do that this very moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your heart. If you will humble yourself before God, if you will acknowledge that you are a sinner, if you will confess that you deserve judgment, but you want Jesus Christ to come into your life, forgive your sins, the Lord will answer such a prayer. If it is uttered with humility, uttered genuinely, the Lord will answer that prayer. So if you're here today, you're not a child of God, or there's any doubt in your mind, then I urge you, strongly urge you, encourage you, to come to terms with that issue this very moment, right now, where you are seated. Invite Jesus Christ into your life. Humble yourself before Him. 
Let go of whatever is holding you back and come to know Jesus Christ. If you are a child of God, thank God that your sins are forgiven. Thank Him for the privilege of knowing Him personally, knowing His Son. Thank Him for the victory He has given us over Satan who is wicked. Wicked to the core. And He's granted us victory over him. If you are a child of God, you are strong because the Word of God abides in you and that should motivate you and me to want the Word of God to abide more and more and more. So there's something for all of us in these verses if our ears are open and our hearts are receptive. Father, thank you for this rich little section of 1 John to be reminded of some things that are maybe elementary in the sense that they're foundational, but that doesn't mean that they are simple or that they are unimportant by any means. In fact, nothing is more important than the assurance that our sins are forgiven. As Jesus said, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather that your names are written in heaven. So as we think through the glories of truth that we've seen in these verses. May your Holy Spirit take these truths and apply them in our lives, rivet them in our hearts, use them to spur us, to encourage us to whatever, whatever applications, whatever changes we need to make in response to what you have taught us this morning. May we be not only quick to hear, but quick to act, quick to apply. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.